What's up guys, this is Zhishen here, and in this podcast series, I hope to talk more about the current affairs which are affecting us. Each week, I will select a particular incident and elaborate on how it affects us in Singapore. Similarly, I'll bring over guest speakers each week to discuss their views on a particular matter. Stay tuned! Hi, good morning. It's been quite a while since I've done my podcast episodes because I'm currently a year two student studying at Catholic Junior College and I'm currently preparing for my A-levels and preliminary exams. So apologies if, I, if I've ever been too consistent with my podcast ep- um, uploads. So for the context of today's episode, I'll be discussing about the importance of nationhood and the discrimination of mental health in Singapore. So today is 10th of August. We just celebrated our nation's birthday yesterday. And I've come across this interesting Instagram post by the twin I've met, which states how the National Day surfaces as a bouquet of conflicting emotions for me, like clockwork, the swell of patriotism engulfs as I remember how far our country has came. Yet, I am reminded of how much further our country has to go, and much more we have to fight for. The person wrote this last year, after a read of Mr. Sharon's George Air Condition Nation Revisited, but it seems particularly poignant to this point in time. The spat of racist and xenophobic incidents that have occurred in the past year are far from anomalies. They are indicative of the tenuous racial relations we have prided ourselves on in years past. Relations we have made no effort to build upon the, beyond the surface level. These incidents have brought to light to the superficiality of our race, racial harmony, a stark realization that we have grown to call ourselves Singaporeans in spite of our cultural differences rather than because of them. The essay of sorts offers no concrete solutions. After all, Rome wasn't built in a day. But what it identifies is a need, a searing emergency to simply do better so that we may celebrate future National Days without a lump in our throats. But for now, happy National Day. So I'll read out this essay that was well written, I believe, by this author. So, I am, for all intents and purposes, an accidental Singaporean, I'd much rather believe it was some sort of preordained destiny, but it was in reality geographical absence. The monsoon winds that carried my grandfather from Shanto to Nanyang, the neat tide that washed my Peranakan grandmother on Singapore shores. The best part of this origin story is how ordinary it seems compared to those of the fellow sojourners I call kin. A Eurasian friend's great-grandmother sailed halfway across the world with his comrades. An Indian companion's grandparents braved the partition of India as mere toddlers. Yet by sheer luck or folly, we all wound up on a 17-mile-wide, 31-mile-long city-state of the southern coast of Malaysia. Our stories are individually exceptional, yet altogether commonplace, each distinctive and incongruous with one another. It is natural, then, to assume that the links between us would be tenuous at best. Other racially homogeneous societies rely on notions of common geology, 
and desensitize to bind citizens together. Logic dictates that we, as a multicultural society, cannot employ the same methods. Instead, we have turned to ethnically ambiguous civic symbols, the pam and pangetry of National Day parades, and the carefully constructed national narratives in our national education and social studies curriculum. Yet, to many Singaporeans, these forms of national identity taste solely artificial. In our haste to form new experiences independent of race and religion, we have forgotten just how uniquely Singaporean our multiculturalism is. Shireen George argues in Air Condition Nation Revisited that Singapore has fallen short in promoting an appreciation for our multicultural makeup as a source of national strength. Citing how template government speeches about race and religion refer to Singapore's cultural landscape as ridden with fault lines, a geographical term that treats our multicultural, multi-religious character as a permanent risk factor, ever ready to erupt. How Racial Harmony Day is commemorated as the anniversary of the 1964 race riots, not so much with celebration in mind, but with caution, to be wary of our diversity rather than to relish it. It doesn't help that our founding father seemed to have favoured homogeneity over diversity. He once quoted, and I quote, I have said openly that if we were 100% Chinese, we would do better, but we are not and will never be. So live with what we have, end quote. Singapore's approach to race and religion is what sociologist Nirmala Purushtam has termed disciplining difference a top-down process that has decided what constitutes acceptable and unacceptable expressions of ethnic identity. Races have had to make sacrifices for the sake of the homogeneous national identity, from the suppression of Chinese dialects to the mandatory removal of the Tudong for Malay Muslim out of school, at school, or serving in frontline public service roles. This impulse to erase ethnic difference is seen even within the construction of historical narrative to foster national identity. Certain chapters of our Singapore story, like the narrative of the Japanese occupation, was conceived by flattening of different ethnic experiences into a single model of common suffering, to deepen national identity by conceptualizing homogeneous historical injustice. The erasure of the distinctive stories from each ethnicity made the narrative feel more carefully constructed rather than organically formed. Removing the significance of the stories vis-a-vis every ethnicity. We seem to have taken the misguided approach that we are inevitably at odds with our fellow citizens because of our differences in race or creed, and that the suppression of our heterogeneous ethnic identities is thus imperative for a common national identity to be achieved. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, it would be ill-advised to take racial and religious harmony for granted, Ethnic strife turns explosive in other countries all around the world. From the Black Lives Matter protests in America to the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, countries with a similar patchwork quilt of race and religion have set troubling precedents for us. Those who espouse our policy of tolerance will accredit Singapore's relative harmony to such. But what they really mean is this, that our tenuous social stability exists only because we know to push our race rhetoric, racist rhetoric into private spaces, because we tolerate to keep the peace.
and because we don't question the insularity that permute, permits permeates the attitudes of our countrymen. We keep our racism nice, neat, trim, around the edges, serve on a platter of preference and parlance. We make ourselves scarce when conversations surrounding race and religion arise, valuing our own comfort above a deeper understanding of our country's deep-seated issues and our individual responsibility to true social harmony. We need to dismantle before we can rebuild. We need to upend our preconceived understanding of our nation and its people, hash out these uncomfortable discussions and arrive at a kinder conclusion. Some argue that this will be the fall of Singapore as we know it, that we cannot play with fire and expect not to be burned. I argue that this fall is inevitable. If we persist along this current trajectory, that the walls will continue to construct between our communities and fracture our society eventually. That we already see the threads of social fabric unraveling. We cannot allow this malice to fester, for this sorbid underbelly to balloon and subsume ourselves till we are altogether unrecognizable. I believe that Singapore can and will suppress such an upheaval, that we will come out the other end stronger for it, a milestone in our search for a truly cohesive national identity. A lack of national identity is the root of so many of our nation's problems, a politically apathetic electorate, increasing brain drain, yet we shy away from the one quality that could significantly deepen our na national consciousness. We tread on eggshells, eschewing conversations about race and religion because we've been taught that our differences somehow threaten national identity. I believe it's the reverse. We are unquestionably sui generis precisely because our identity both includes and transcends race. Because we are similarly axiological and destination destinarian, in spite of our cultural differences, only then will we learn to celebrate this where we finally cultivate a cohesive, deep-seated sense of what it means to be Singaporean. So that is the first part of what is my podcast talking about. And in the second, second half, I'll be talking about the mental health discrimination experience in Singapore. So for the past few months, I would say as a student, it might be particularly unsettling for me, especially reading through the news headlines as seen in the River Valley High incident, the ASR um, student on the train tracks as another one, and the SGI student who had an accident in school. So all of these recent examples flare up how the students are not maybe not seeking the help that they require because of the pent-up anxiety or overwhelming emotions that comes with COVID-19. Because we remember COVID-19 affects everyone, not only the working adults. It affects the children too as they are often stuck at home and they are unable to release their pent-up energy outside. Additionally, they may feel overstressed because of the workload that they face due to HBL. I mean, as a student, I can agree with i can i can agree with their grief with our grievances so as a result the minister of education minister chan 
announce the removal of the common last topics or CLTs in the national exams for both, I mean for PSLE, O-level, N-level and A-levels. I feel that this decision is a bit rushed out in a way. I feel that despite the removal of these topics, it was usually the easier topics that was removed. So I'm not sure if it made a difference, but it does make a difference because there are lesser questions, lesser easier questions to ask. But I mean, at, at least he's working on a buddy system which helps to check each student's mental well-being. So, right. so I'm appreciative that they are taking the first step of recognizing that there is an issue among students, especially in the mental health area. So props up to them, and I hope that they will work towards a better education system which is more acceptive and inclusive to all students regardless of their grades because as i feel that school should be a place of learning and excitement but now i've now coming to the end of it i feel that firstly for me and many other students they just go to school to take in all of the work without experiencing the spark the curiosity within them to learn instead they'll just absorb all the information and regurgitated on the exam paper just to get a desirable grade that they want. So yeah, this has led, I know this was like a systemic issue from the past, but I'm not sure when it would explode into that manner where people would start losing it in a way. So yeah, so let's talk about mental health discrimination in Singapore. So that was a bit of context as a student in terms of mental health awareness or issues that I can relate to or C as a student in Singapore. So yeah, so, so speaking of mental health, recent events have reminded us of the importance of mental health and wellness. And more poignantly, the importance of proper diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders. Yet, mental health discrimination remains a form of prejudice that many feel free to express without censure. About half of Singaporeans are unwilling to live with, nearby, or work with someone with mental health issues. Um, examples of mental health disorders could be like depression, anxiety, OCD, and such illnesses or ailments require proper and professional diagnosis for those who have to seek it, so to seek the help they need. Yet, despite many, I mean, yet many Sing Singapore still feel the fear of seeking such help because of the existing stigma surrounding mental health conditions here. The negative st sentiments born by those around them could go beyond personal interactions and may significantly affect them in their professional lives as well. So what are the factors contributing to that? To tackle the stigma surrounding the mental health conditions, it is important to first identify its underpinnings. So number one, the cultural stigma. The Asian mindsets best described with the Chinese cultural construct of face, like yao lian la, so it's like, it's kind of like pride in a way in English. So it's referring to one status, prestige, in the social hierarchy. It is intertwined with our perception of those with mental health conditions. A 2020 study by IMH researchers suggests that mental health issues are perceived as losing face for both the individual and family members. This may deter help-seeking and render the issue more taboo, creating an ideal information for more misinformation to circulate. Number two, it is the lack of understanding. The fear of the unknown may drive some away from seeking help. It does not help that local TV lacks positive portrayals of those with mental health issues. 
which could dispel the aura of uncomfortable unfamiliarity. Unlike Western outlets like Netflix, featuring hit shows encouraging therapy like Lucifer, and portraying the complex nature of mental health like Bojack Horseman. So is this a vicious cycle? Um, yeah, and there are certain factors that back it up. So the stigmatization of mental health issues compels those who have such conditions to hide them, especially milder cases where consumment is much easier for fear of being subject to consequence or prejudice. This fear reduces the community visibility precisely when it's in need of most. In abstention of any reliable representation, the general public is more likely to take cues on how to view and treat patients based on the tenuous extrapolations from crackages in the media representation, sensationalized news stories of extreme cases. Or perhaps they may draw this stigma from their own negative experiences interacting with extreme cases where someone who has behaved professional, who has needed professional help has behaved inappropriately in a public space. So what's the myth of the danger? We may end up with the myth that everyone with mental health issues are dangerous, irrational, or incapable of handling the rigors of work, a notion which is irrational or uninfor- and uninformed. Mental health issues are significantly diverse in the type and the severity. A very significant group of people with mental health issues are high-functioning, which means that their capa- the conditions do not affect their capabilities in any way. Moreover, we should not discount the ability of treatments such as therapy and medication to manage such symptoms. This is evident in job, discri- job discriminations for mental health. Such discrimination is also economically inefficient, as perfectly qualified candidates are often passed over due to a mental health condition. With 1 in 7 predicted to have a mental health condition at lifetime, discounting this much potential seems unwise. Moreover, a 2017 study by NCSS also found that employers receive $5.60 on the dollar in terms of the average return by lowering absenteeism and increasing productivity when they invested in good workplace adjustments to support persons recovering from mental health issues. Yet, job employers still retain such discriminatory practices. In 2020, Minister in Charge of Public Service, Minister Chan, declared in Parliament without reservation that the public service no longer asks job applicants about their mental health. Yet, it seems that the policy still hasn't been applied consistently, as some scholarships and hiring boards in the civil service continue to routinely push their applicants to make such disclosures. There's also, this can also be seen in the MFA internship application, MOE teaching scholarship, and the MOE relief teacher application requires candidates to make such declarations whether they have any had any mental health conditions. Sometimes the question comes indirectly. The Public Service Commission scholarship, for example, asks male applicants to declare their past status in NS and more crucially the reason for it. Asking these questions, especially in the absence of adequate transparency over how these HR departments handle cases in which the applicants are candid about their mental health record opens up the possibility for discrimination. This contradiction between rhetoric and action sends mixed signals to the private sector employers, ambiguity which some have, may have exploited to persist in the discrimination. As Singapore's largest employer, the government occupies a unique position of influence and authority. We should wield this responsibly wisely as a standard bearer. So, 
are the extremities? Granted, there will be inevitably be extreme cases of severe mental health issues, which impede one's work to fulfill the task. So the need to ask these questions are understandable, even if the even if this contradicts the government's promises. Should they wish to retain those questions, they should provide greater transparency about their processes. There's little way of knowing if milder cases of mental health issues where individuals are fully capable of serving may be treated the same way as the cartridge extremes. As the body who has introduced non-discrimination laws in the first place, it is imperative for the government to be the first one to truly implement them, setting an example for the private sector to follow. So, in COVID-19 looking forward, beyond employment, in view of the pervasiveness of such mental health issues, an issue further exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, addressing the needs is, a national, is held as a national priority. To tackle this, the government has implemented an interagency task force to tackle the implications of COVID-19 on mental health of the citizens. And MOE's ramping, revamping of the CCE or the Character and Citizenship Education Curriculum in secondary schools to help students understand and stigmatize, destigmatize mental health issues. Thus, the gaps highlighted better before are likely more of a reflection of a government still grappling with an intraceable and unfamiliar issue rather than one that completely dismisses it. Thus, the stigma destigmatization would be greatly aided by laying out and enforcing clear and substantiative rules governing how mental health issues are treated, sending the right signals to the rest of the society and employers, and bringing the unhelpful practices into a greater coherence with its commendable concern for mental health. So, that's all for today's episode. If you have enjoyed listening to today's podcast series, please feel free to share it on relevant social media website, I mean platforms, to help um, game, help me gain a wider audience. So, this is Sushen. Thank you for listening, and I'm signing off. Bye-bye!